0: What's good, y'all? This is Code Switch. I'm Gene Demby.
1: And I'm Shereen Marisol Maraji. And this week, we're doing an episode that's all about you. Your questions, your curiosities. It was inspired by your tweets, emails, and phone calls. Mm-hmm. Tweets like this one from listener Jacqueline Church.
0: And Jacqueline Church says, Can we have a conversation about woke as a term? I understand how it's used and why. But if we're trying to engage and build continuous learning, I think woke sounds like I'm done.
2: I stay woke. One, two.
1: One, two, three, four.
0: That's Erica Badu, the queen who is widely credited as having coined the term "stay woke."
1: I'm body rolling in my chair right now.
0: Yes, queen.
1: Yes. <laughs> and notice Badu's not saying I am woke. Nope. She's saying, "I stay woke." Mm. Important distinction. To get at the distinction, we talked to Charles Pulliam Moore. He was one of our former interns. Remember him? Mm-hmm, I do. He's now a reporter with Fusion, and last year he wrote a piece called "How Woke Went from Black Activist Watchword to Teen Internet Slang."
3: When Black people were initially saying like "stay woke" to one another, it was like a reminder, right? Like, oh, like when you're out there protesting in Ferguson, like stay woke, stay cognizant of like all the dangers that surround you.
0: And of course, when he says the dangers that surround you, he's talking about everything, everywhere. And I'm gesticulating toward the entire American idea.
3: When you identify as woke, it's not just like, oh, like I am in the static state of being, right? I, I understand racial injustice in America. Rather, it's more sort of like, on a continuous rolling basis, you're able to identify the ways in which, like, systemic racism affect people.
1: Back in my day, we said conscious. Mm-hmm. I know I'm dating myself here, Gene, you but you know what I'm talking about. those
0: conscious rappers with dirty backpacks. Mm-hmm. I remember that article by Charles about woke. Charles sketched out the history of woke from Badu to today. He said Badu nodded to stay woke in 2008 with the song we just heard, Master Teacher. And it wasn't until after the Trayvon Martin shooting and the advent of Black Lives Matter that people really, really started using it broadly to mean, like, Conscious.
1: Politically and socially aware. Right. Here's Charles again.
3: When we get into spaces where we're referring to, like, white wokeness, that's when you get into a space that's more sort of like, a oh, you've gone through an awakening of sorts, right? The the wool has been pulled from over your eyes. And to someone who doesn't necessarily know how the term, how the phrase is used amongst people of color in particular— Right. Um, It can seem sort of like a, a milestone that you've made. Right. Like, oh, I'm woke now. And suddenly, you know, all of the all of the problems caused by, you know, garden variety, white ignorance no longer apply to this person. But that's not the case. When we're talking about staying woke in reference to white people, when people of color saying it to white people, we should be like, okay, well, like you're woke now. And now you're like now that you are on this track, keep going.
1: And a big shout out to Jacqueline Church for your question. You're right, Jacqueline. Don't be woke. Stay woke. So, Gene, let's get back to listener questions. What's next?
0: Okay, remember when we talked about black people in horror a few weeks ago?
1: How can I forget? It's haunting me.
0: Good, good. One of the, that means we did a good job. One of the things that came up in that episode was this idea of the magical Negro who, mm-hmm. like that character in The Shining, could talk to people with his mind.
4: My grandmother and I could hold conversations entirely
0: without ever opening our mouths. So here's the question from our listener. Hi, my name is Marcus Harvey and I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana. My question arises from the conversation that you guys had about the film Get Out. There was much conversation about always being the black guy in horror films, but you also briefly talked about the magical self-sacrificing good beyond all repute black man. Where does that narrative come from?
1: Jean, you called up Ebony Elizabeth Thomas, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, for the answer.
0: Philly, what's up? So, Professor, what can you tell us about the magical Negro trope uh, that... Marcus Harvey asked us about.
2: So award-winning director Spike Lee is the first recorded user of the term. So during speaking tours in the early 2000s, he used Magical Negro to describe Will Smith's character in The Legend of Bagger Vance.
0: For those of you who don't know, Bagger Vance is a, <laughs> is a <laughs> magical caddy whose job it is to fix Matt Damon's golf swing. I ain't seen a man hit a ball like that since the North-South Championship 1916. You know, they stopped play for 20 minutes to measure how far it went. Back of Vance, the name.
2: The Magic Negro, or Magical Negro, is a stock character in a film, television show, or other visual narrative that exists only in service to the white protagonist's plot.
0: Can you give us another example of a Magical Negro?
2: Another example could be Rue from The Hunger Games, who I write about in my forthcoming book, The Dark Fantastic. Although she's played beautifully by Amandla Stenberg, she's not allowed to exist solely for herself, even when imperiled or in danger of death. So, you know the famous haunting call? Ah, ah, ah. Jays. That's great. Back home, using the signal all the time. That actually is the signal that Rue's district gives to Katniss when she tries to save Rue but doesn't succeed. Rue is the dark sacrifice required for Katniss to win the games. This is a 12 year old girl who has to die. And we see that throughout storytelling, that the noble savage, the magical Negro, the dark other, has to die for the narrative to progress.
0: So how far back did this trope go?
2: Um, It actually has its genesis in the concept of the noble savage, which was birthed toward the end of the Enlightenment during the slave trade and the age of conquest. This stereotype certainly goes back much further than the term itself
0: is there a particular depiction of the magical negro or even the noble savage that particularly annoys you?
2: Well, certainly as a children's literature scholar, one of the quibbles that I have with the magical Negro characters is that they don't get a chance to have a storyline. They don't get a love interest. I think it's a rather cynical way that Hollywood and mainstream publishing have responded to calls for greater diversity. We keep seeing magical characters of color who do not provide adequate or accurate representation.
0: Can you give me an example of other characters of color who are not black that have sort of occupied the same space in a narrative?
2: Oh, my goodness. There are so many. How long do we have? Um, (laughs) There's Mr. Miyagi, certainly, and the Karate Kid. So with a character of color who's serving in that role, there'll always be some signal to their ethnicity that leaves you with a bad taste in your mouth.
4: These bonsai have strong root. Same, same you.
2: I think it's troubling that while maybe not an overt stereotype, we don't see the fullness of Mr. Miyagi's humanity. We don't get a context where he has a family life. We only see stereotypical signals of his Japanese heritage. So, you know, we have the bonsai tree. And while that's fine to have representations of culture. Those of us who are calling for a greater representation of people of color in today's media and storytelling, we'd like more. We'd like to see the fullness of people's humanity in these stories. And magical characters, whether Black, Asian, Native, Latinx, Arab, just doesn't cut it in 2017.
0: That's Ebony Elizabeth Thomas. She teaches at the Graduate School of Education at the University of Pennsylvania. Her book, The Dark Fantastic, comes out next year.
1: Looking forward to that.
0: Okay, so Shireen, when we come back, we're going to turn to a question you get asked all the time, IRL.
1: To find out what that is, stay woke and stay with us.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Ben & Jerry's, a B Corp committed to using the power of business to advance progressive social change. Since the company's earliest days, Ben & Jerry's has been about a lot more than just euphoric ice cream. Today, they believe that dialogue can bridge differences, promoting a more just and equitable future for all. Join Ben & Jerry's on a journey to better understand issues of race in America and get involved at BenJerry.com slash racialjustice. All this month, we're asking you to tell a friend about a podcast you love. Got it? Now go do it. Tell them about it in real life or on social media. And if they don't know about podcasts, just show them how to do it. Tell us what you recommend with the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y pod. Thanks for spreading the word. Okay, homie, we are back with listener questions. To talk about your favorite question is a question that a lot of our listeners get to. We invited our play cousin, Tambi Misra, to chop it up with us. She's a staff writer at CityLab at The Atlantic and another former Coatswitch intern.
1: Welcome home, Tambi. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, so you're here because a couple episodes ago on the podcast, I did something on Puerto Rican identity, and one of the people I interviewed, her name is Sofia Rivera, talked about being asked the question, where are you from?
0: Where are you from? And I'd say, oh, I'm from Puerto Rico. And like the changing of the visage of people and their perceptions of
3: me
1: afterward, it makes me feel really bad. Like it, it makes you feel less. Folks tweeted at us and said, yeah, that's a question they get asked a lot. And it makes them feel like they don't belong. And you wrote a piece about this for City Lab. And I'm, I'm just wondering, like, why did you decide to write about where are you from?
4: I decided to write about it because I've been asked that question and also because it's come up in conversations I've had with my friends. When I'm asked that question, usually, you know, it's been in a variety of situations, you know, by Uber drivers in bars or you know in a in a setting where people are making introductions and all of those have different connotations and and sort of evoke different reactions from me you know if it's an uber driver who's also an immigrant often they're going to be asking that question because they want to sort of they want to relate to me right, right. and so they want to they want to be like hey where are you from i'm from this place and we have a thing to talk about a shared experience whereas at a bar it's because someone is seen me, not heard me talk, not heard that I have an accent, which, you know, obviously I do. (laughs) (laughs) And just by my appearance, made certain assumptions about who I am and whether I belong. And that's really annoying. And using it as a pickup line is just doubly creepy. So, yeah, the point is that that question is often code for a variety of different questions. Questions like? Questions like, what's your ethnicity? Or, you know, what's your race? Or where are your parents from? Or that accent, where is that from? People tweeted at us uh, to say
1: it's that one thing that people ask us when they're basically pointing out that we're not white Americans.
0: Or they don't know what you are, right?
1: Yeah.
4: That's the other one, right? That's the big one. What are you? I think that's... What uh, are you? Exactly. I I get that one all the time. It's like, what are you? Which I find to be incredibly rude. Also, I think it's the fact that you get it so much. It just gets so tiring, I bet, just to be able to answer those questions and be like, No, I'm from here.
0: But a lot of people don't get that this question is not always innocuous, right? They're like, oh, that's just small talk. It's just the thing you would say to Party, Oh, where are you from? And the thing is that often there's a follow up question and then you answer like, Oh, I'm from Cleveland and like, oh no, but where are you from? Right? How do you distinguish between the innocuous ask and the much more insidious, why are you brown?
4: Yeah, I mean it's really tough. I don't think that there's like a clear answer for that. It's an obvious question that has been asked because of the way that I look, right? Whereas if it's a natural question to ask in the course of a conversation. When I wrote the piece that I wrote, which was exploring all the different sort of context, right, and and the different meanings behind this question. We got a lot of that in the comments, uh, where we had people say, no, this is just how we've always done it. We, You know, we're from small towns. This is how you identify a person, or this is how you start a conversation there. I guess you have to really take all of that into account when you're evaluating your own reaction to these questions. But yeah, I don't know. There's no clear answer.
1: You wrote about how Asian Americans in particular kind of bristle at the question because the question assumes foreignness. Can you talk more about that and like talk about the research that you did?
4: Yeah. Like I said, you know, I have an accent, so I don't mind if that question comes to me after someone has heard me speak and been like, hey, I see that you have an accent. I was just wondering where that was from or where you're from. But for a lot of my friends who don't have accents, who are just Asian, whether that's South Asian or East Asian, that question is really grating because... I mean, of the history of Asian Americans in this country, which has been that they're sort of perpetual foreigners. And that has been codified in immigration policy, whether it's like the Chinese Exclusion Act in the late 1800s or in the quota system that was put in place in the Immigration Act in 1924 or Japanese internment camps. I mean, those were policies that were made on the assumption that people who look a certain way did not belong. They weren't American.
0: So, Shereen. Yes. We were just hearing from Tumby, and she was talking about the where are you from question, which is not really the where are you from question. And, you know, one of the things that happens with her is that her accent marks her as someone who might not be from here. I'm doing the air quotes. So what does an accent for someone who was from here who was American sound like? To get into that, we decided to holler at Brent Blair. He's an associate professor of theater practice in voice and theater for social change at USC. He's sitting right across from you, Shereen. Yes, he is. Hi. So the question that we have is, what does it sound like to be American in 2017?
5: Oh, boy. I mean, what a loaded question, because what is American identity? I think that we understand this quote unquote American dialect or received American pronunciation based on culture and media, what sells. And that's been mostly generated in the West Coast from Hollywood, where we're sitting right now. So what I had been referring to is kind of a vanilla accent, it's got no twisty or harsh R sounds mm-hmm. or twangy stuff or dropped off. You know, it's just what Hollywood always understood as standard. And if you don't fit into that, you're kind of out of the Noah's arc of acceptability in language.
1: So would my accent be a typical California vanilla accent?
5: <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Brent. You're welcome.
1: <laughs> so who's allowed to have an American accent, this vanilla California <laughs> this vanilla
5: accent? California. For me, accents and dialects is problematically this power game where people would like to control how you sound. I think if you talk to, you know, speech specialists and accent people in academia, they track change in migration of accents. For example, Regionalisms are disappearing rapidly. Mm-hmm. In the last 20 years or so, an Atlanta Georgian sounds kind of like a Californian these days. Wow. You can't tell that it's between often an urban Houstonian and an urban Chicagoan or an urban New Yorker. However, it's sort of when you get into rural areas that you start getting back into that juicy, beautiful diversity that makes us... You know, such an amazing group of people. But because careers and commercialism and, I guess, globalization have basically said we want to sound all the same, we're heading towards what I would like to call, like, the USS Enterprise future, where you have people from all over, but they all sound American with the same kind of American accent. Now, that
0: is really fascinating that you're in big cities in which you would see a lot of, presumably a lot of different cultures
5: colliding with each other, that people would have more increasingly placeless accents? Well, I mean, placeless, if you're in an economic commerce culture or if you're in that class of people.
1: So you're saying it's a class thing, not a race thing.
5: I think it's an access thing. I think it's a power thing. I think in the same way that people from, for example, a cultural background that carries with it a historic, stereotypical accent. So um, you said you have Puerto Rican background, Mm -hmm. right? And so somebody thinks Puerto Rican and they think an accent that they might hear on a really bad version of West Side Story where almost nobody was from that place but they were all learning or affecting a Puerto Rican accent.
1: Are Latinos, African-Americans, you know, South Asians, are we allowed to have that accent?
5: If I'm allowed to sound anything at all, it depends upon the culture that is, I guess, employing me but also my relationship to that employment, my relationship to systems of power. So what's your relationship to citizens about? You work at NPR. Mm-hmm. And yet you just said, you didn't say Latino, you said Latino. So you've given yourself permission to dive into your Latinoness. Maybe with more permission, you would allow yourself uh, hablar en español de vez en cuando when mm-hmm. you want. But we have a cultural idea based on dominant culture. But unfortunately... You know, we live in a world of binaries. We need simple things until we fall in love. And the moment you fall in love with uh, somebody with red hair, for example, suddenly every single person with red hair looks different (laughs) because you have put your focus on that. So for me, when we're accent stereotyping, it just means we haven't fallen in love enough with that community to understand its diversity and its complexity.
1: Very deep thoughts from Brent Blair, a theater professor at the University of Southern California. Mm -hmm.
0: And you're listening to a song giving Brent life right now. Janelle Monae's Hell You
1: Talking
0: About. So of course we asked Brent, you know, why this song? And he said, to be honest, I've mostly been drawn to the angrier songs, mostly around the theme of Black Lives Matter. All right, y'all, that's our show for this week. Follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Codeswitch. We want to hear from you. Our email address is Codeswitch at NPR.org. Subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found or streamed.
1: Sammy Yenigan, Maria Paz Gutierrez, and Walter Ray Watson produced this episode. We had original music by Arab Louis.
0: And a shout out to the rest of the Codeswitch family. Leah Danella, Adrian Florido, Karen Grigsby-Bates, and Kat Chow. Our intern is George Sinas.
1: Our editors are Netta Ulaby and Juleka Lantigua Williams. I'm Gene Demby and I'm Shereen Marisol Meraji. Be easy. Peace his Bell say his name Sean Bell say his name
3: Sean
1: Bell to say his The Austin 100 from NPR Music has 100 fresh discoveries that you can actually download for a limited time. That's 100 free songs. Yours to keep gratis showcasing the best new artists from this year's south by southwest music festival
0: all you have to do is visit npr.org austin 100 and until march 31st you can grab all 100 songs at the click of a link what or if downloading isn't your thing search for the austin 100 on the npr1 app
1: i like free things